Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia, and you're listening to episode two. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. In this second episode, we'll be talking about Oscar Lopez Rivera, a Puerto Rican freedom fighter who was imprisoned for 36 years for his activism trying to get Puerto Rico free. For the case segment, we'll be talking about Puerto Rico versus Franklin, California tax-free trust. That's the case where the Supreme Court decided whether or not Puerto Rico could file for Chapter 9 bankruptcy to get itself out of its massive debt. And in the deep thought segment, we'll be talking about the importance of mental health, how we take care of ourselves and why it's important to do so as lawyers to be. And then just like last time, we'll end with recommendations. Before we start, we just wanted to give a big thank you to everyone who supported us, specifically the Latinx community. Thank you for all your support. We specifically wanted to shout out Latinos Who Lunch and Radio Menea, two of our favorite Latinx podcasts, as well as Latinas Uprising, a social media platform dedicated to empowering young Latinas who want to be lawyers, and also just the young Latina and Latinx listeners who either want to go to law school or in law school, um, who said that they appreciate our perspective. We we do this for you, we love you, and we see you, and we're really happy that you all want to hear what we have to say. Yeah. Okay, so getting into our first segment, Yvette, do you want to uh, introduce who Oscar Lopez Rivera is and why he's been in the news recently? Yeah. So I personally see him as a freedom fighter, but others see him as a terrorist. Uh so he was a part of the Fuerzas Armadas de Liberación Nacional Puertorriqueña, and that was uh, an activist group that was responsible for uh, multiple bombings across the U.S. in New York, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. Um, although it's important to note that Oscar Lopez Rivera himself was never, there was never any physical evidence that linked him to these bombings. He was just affiliated with the group. Uh, he served 35 years in prison for a seditious conspiracy, uh, transporting firearms with the intent to commit violent crimes and the transportation of explosives. Um, he was imprisoned in 1981, and President Obama recently granted him clemency, actually on the same day that he granted clemency to Chelsea Manning. Oscar Lopez Rivera at that point had been in prison for 36 years, 12 of which he spent in solitary confinement. At the time that he was released, he's now 74 years old. Yvette, um, could you talk a little bit more about what exactly is seditious conspiracy? Yeah, so it's pretty important to know about this crime because it's one in which you don't have to be, you don't have to actually be accused of committing a violent crime yourself. Uh, but if you are affiliated with um, what they call organized crime, um, or in this instance, if you're associated with a group like the FALN, uh, then you can be charged as if you had committed the crimes that the whole group had committed, um, which is a pretty interesting departure from a criminal system that talks about guilt being individual. Uh, and this, the charge of seditious conspiracy has actually been used a lot historically against political activists. It's been used against anarchists and socialists um, around World War 
one. Um, and it, the FBI also um, started rigorously prosecuting people under this um, around the 1970s, which is when Oscar's group was active. Um, and so the the U.S., I think it's, it's also important to note, has a long history of suppressing Puerto Rican freedom movements, essentially since it in invaded the island in 1898. Uh, and so it's because of that, no surprise that a person like Oscar Lopez Rivera was targeted um, because he's seen as an inspiration to many on the island as a symbol of their potential for freedom. Mm -hmm. um, yes, he's been called the Mandela of Puerto Rico. Um, so, Cynthia, I know that um, you've been focusing on excessive punishments and cruel punishments through a lot of your death penalty work. Um, so I wanted to ask what your thoughts were on Oscar Lopez Rivera having to endure 12 years of solitary confinement. That was absolutely terrible. And one of the saddest things I read, um, solitary confinement is just really, really awful. And I am really, uh, what in as a part of my abolition work, I also want to think about prison conditions now. And solitary confinement is one of those things that has to go. Um, you know, when he was, when I was reading an article about what he felt about his solitary confinement you know he mentioned that he spent all but two hours a week um in his concrete cell with no sight of the sky so just like if we could just all take a minute to imagine ourselves being in a concrete box like seven days um 24 hours a day except for two hours just like just two like that i don't know how oscar Rivera um has gone through this and like come out on the other side, like such an eloquent, articulate person. Like I'm not at all surprised, but I just know that I personally could not do that. Like having to spend that much time in solitary confinement, um, I, I wouldn't be able to hold it together. Um, and then I also thought it was really crazy that, so the reason he was placed into solitary confinement um, was that he was a, like, his sentence was extended as well because he was, you know, con like found guilty of like trying to escape, like having an, like conspiring to like do an escape attempt. But he insists and like, like I think w throughout this segment, we're, we're going to talk more about how incredible of a person he is and how much like he like really lives by honor and his personal values. And so I do, I believe that he is not lying when he says like when he insists that he was actually framed by agents who were planted in his cell who then like, made this plot to escape and implicated him in it um like uh, that there's no doubt in my mind that that's actually what happened and it's just like jesus christ like u.s government like you already have this man locked up for like a long ass time like why are you gonna like and i think that this goes to what you were saying about what he symbolizes but it's just like like jesus leave him the fuck alone like you're really gonna like then do plant agents in his cell to do this, um, get his sentence extended and then place him in solitary confinement. Like, you know, this is around the time when he took a painting and he says that like he had to take a painting because like his eyes started to lose like the ability to see color. And it's just like, I, I cannot not even imagine having to go through that experience. Um, I, yeah, I can't like, it's just all the time that he endured, um, and Yvette, I know you've talked about about how throughout this whole time he was still so committed to his comrades. Do you want to highlight uh, one of the reasons why we think he's so amazing? Yeah. So um, 
what I think is amazing about Oscar is that um, he was drafted into the Vietnam War and he claims and talks about how that experience is actually what politicized him. Um, he says that fighting for the U.S. as a colonial subject himself and seeing the terror that the U.S. was wreaking on the Vietnamese people made him better understand colonialism. And he said that ever since he came back, he had this commitment to never leave anyone behind um, because his his compassion and his understanding of solidarity had very much widened after being in Vietnam. And so in that same spirit, he was offered a deal in 1999 um, that would have allowed him to be released in 2009. Um, but not everyone from FALN who was arrested with him was given the deal. Two people weren't. And so um, he rejected the deal because he said that no one ever gets left behind and he wanted to show solidarity to his comrades. That's so incredible. That's just so inspiring. You know, I want to have that level of commitment to, to my cause and my comrades. Yeah. Um, I think this is uh, just one. I, I really love like how he frames like his experience in Vietnam. Um, just as like the, the raising of the consciousness for him. Um, yeah. But I also like want to take like a second to address like the like the violence he's associated with, um, just because I like while you and I Yvette, consider him like a freedom fighter, um, I think you know we as we'll talk about later he's very like there's there's mixed opinions about him in like the big public society of the U.S. Um, and a lot of that has to do with his, uh, association with violence. So I think we just like need to address it. Um, I personally, you know, first off, I think it's like hilarious and by and, like, I mean, hilarious very broadly. <laughs> um, he like, where did he learn violence from? Like, oh yeah. From the U S government when he was forced to go to war against Vietnam, um, that's where he first saw violence. You know, that's where he learned it. That's where he understood it as a tactic. Um, and he understood it for how violence is usually used, right? It's usually used by the colonizers against the colonized. Uh, and he, and that's how he learned it. So it's like when you go through that experience, and I think Franz Fanon talks a lot about this, um, about, you know, violence and like the colonization is a violent like thing it's not it doesn't happen passively it is a violent experience um so even for you and I Yvette, I feel like even though we're part of this country as like U.S. citizens and all of that I still think like we experience like violence from this government in all sorts of ways um mm -hmm. and I think most explicitly we can point to cop shootings of people of color um as a very like explicit like violence and it's because the government has a monopoly of violence right uh, that they can legitimately use and like face no repercussions for it. So it's like all of having all of this in the background, like I could understand, like I understand the logic that then takes you like to I like violence against the government, against the colonial um, entity is warranted because the, the experience of a colonized subject is violent every day. Um, 
yeah, I don't know if you want to add to that, what you think about it. Yeah, so I'll just say that um, he's explained that that they believed that they were actually adhering to international law because, (coughs) sorry, uh, international law says that colonialism is a crime against humanity and that colonial people have a right to achieve self-determination by any means and that that includes by force. Um, And then I'll also say that I started off talking about Oscar by noting that some people think of him as a terrorist and some people think of him as a freedom fighter. And I think it's important to note that what your political values are will largely dictate who you place into those two categories because a a lot of people, I think that... um, what Oscar Lopez Rivera was fighting for was exactly what the founding fathers of the U.S. were fighting for. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and so it's it's actually like deeply, deeply ironic that the you know the battle cry was that there can't be any taxation without re- representation when that is exactly what Puerto Rico is. It's a money making territory for the u.s and they're the people on the island aren't given any political say they're not allowed to vote for president or to vote for an elected member in congress um but we still exploit the island the u.s still exploits the island um and so yeah so i'll just say that because i believe that puerto rico should be free then i have deep admiration for oscar lopez rivera's work and his values Yeah, and I just, I really like the explicit comparison in some articles of him to Nelson Mandela because I do think that Nelson Mandela is someone who's, like, been generally, like, in, like, in history, he's going to go down as someone really important and really, like, um, you know, someone who's very inspiring. And I think, though, that in society, this has been, like, not, like, a a whole recognition of him as a person in terms of, like, because Nelson Mandela was also using violent tactics um i feel like that's something that society has just kind of like ignored about nelson mandela instead of like understanding it as part of his person so i just like i think like that's i don't know i just think that it com- that comparison was so important because it highlights that like well yeah nelson mandela did similar tactics he used similar strategies in south africa um so i hope that like that will help us like further understand Oscar Rivera as like a really a, a freedom fighter and not a terrorist right because oh the la- other thing I wanted to mention too is that like something when I first started like looking into this event um, one of the things that I found was super interesting is that within Puerto Rican communities from what I could read online by no means am I like tapped into what Puerto Rican communities think into think about but um, from what I could see online like there was a lot of Puerto Rican communities who like were advocating for his release and who were really like supporting him and and really held him up as a freedom fighter. So I thought that was super telling. Like the community from which he comes from like thinks of him as a hero, but like our the US government and like maybe like bigger news stream sources like they're the ones that are talking about him as a terrorist. And and just like seeing that made me feel like okay, like like I have a lot of reasons not to trust the U.S. government, but, like, seeing what his community thinks about him is really, like, helping me get there. Um, Yvette, you actually went to an event, right, where he spoke, and you got to, like, see that uh, that kind of, like, excitement around him, right? Yeah. You went to one yeah. recently? 
Yeah, I went to um, the it's an Oscar Lopez's free Bay Area event in Berkeley. Uh, he was just recently released from house arrest, and so now he's kind of touring around the country t- uh, talking to folks. And um, the energy in the room was incredible because the people who organized the event were activists and organizers who had been planning solidarity actions to get Oscar free for literally four decades. Like ever since he was in prison, there were people in the Bay Area who were trying to scheme and think of ways that they could help get him free. Uh, And so it was really a celebration of them, their work, and also just, you know, an incredible celebration of the life of Oscar. And uh, it was a really great intergenerational event. There were um, little Puerto Rican kids mm-hmm. who did who did a song and dance for Oscar. And they were like shouting Puerto Rico Libre. <laughs> it was really amazing. Um, and I what I came away with from the event was just a, like feeling deeply, deeply inspired because the political situation in our country has been so bleak as of late, um, like particularly erratic. And it's I, this event <coughs> was one of the first political events that I've been to in a while where I'm just celebrating something. I'm, you know, we're not mourning anything or uh, remembering uh, someone's death. Um, it was it was just a straight up celebration. And um, I that was really important for me because I, I, I get down sometimes like thinking about how upset these how uh, you know thinking about how terrible how ter you know how yeah. how much the US government is oppressing um, the most marginalized but there's this man who was imprisoned for 36 years you know in many ways, I think that you could paint his life in a way where any reasonable person could would come away thinking like, oh, that was kind of a tragic life. But he it's not for him. It's it's a life full of beauty and inspiration. And I, it's interesting because I also saw Albert Woodfox speak, who's another political prisoner. He's a part of the Angola Three, and he was imprisoned in Louisiana for 45 years. And they both... When they spoke, they both gave messages of hope. Like they were both just like, we still need to fight for our freedom. We're going to win. If you know, Oscar Lopez Rivera's message was basically like, if we have a commitment to the work and we're productive, if we actually do things in the, in the name of that cause, then we will win. And I believe that Puerto Rico is one day going to be a freedom of haven and justice in the Caribbean. That is so incredible. And I, I wish I could have gone with you. Um, I, I feel like we can end on that note. That's such a high note. But Yvette, uh, do you want to mention like the the Puerto Rico Day Parade in New York and what happened there? Oh, yeah. So um, the organizers of the Puerto Rican Day Parade wanted to Oscar wanted to honor Oscar Lopez Rivera as a national freedom hero. Um, but corporations, including Goya Foods, JetBlue, AT&T, Coca-Cola, Univision and Telemundo all threatened to pull their support if they were to actually honor him. And so Oscar decided to step back and just march in the parade as what he calls a humble Puerto Rican, which I think, again, just highlights what kind of person he is. I think for him, this isn't really, it's not about him. And that's the best kind of movement person. It's not about him. It's about the Puerto Rican people. And if 
you know, if if yeah. it doesn't make sense for him to be honored, then he's going to step back because he's, you know, he doesn't need the spotlight. It's amazing. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, all right, well, let's move on to our second second segment, which we decided to uh, pick the. It made sense to pick a case about Puerto Rico that came out last year. Um, so we'll move to that Puerto Rico versus Franklin, California tax free trust. Cynthia, before we start, did you want to give a background on bankruptcy law and what it is and why it's important? Yeah. So um, bankruptcy law, which is what this case was dealing about. It was about whether Puerto Rico could uh, file for bankruptcy um, and to some extent. So the reason bankruptcy is important is because when someone like says, like, I can no longer pay back my bills, like I like I'm not going to be able to pay them back. Um what would happen without bankruptcy law is that if I owe a b a per, a person um, eighty dollars and I owe b fifteen and I owe c just five, if c gets to the courthouse before a and b, they can make sure that their five dollars are paid before a and b. So if I run out, if I only have like seven dollars to pay or, or something, um, c will take their five and then. A and B will be like shit out of luck with the rest of it. So that's like on one side, right? Um, why bankruptcy law is important on the side of those that are filing for bankruptcy, especially when it's like a government entity or like a, like a city or something. Um, why it's also important to have bankruptcy law is because when C gets to that courthouse first, they can say like, I, I will be guaranteed to be paid back because city, you have this property that you own that you can sell um, to pay me. Um, and, and that like would happen, right? Like without any consideration of like, okay, well, is this property historic? Is this property something we want to preserve? Is this something that we want to make sure the government continues to own so that everybody has access to it? Bankruptcy law sets up a framework where that kind of holistic approach can happen without it. The court would just say, yeah, as city, you, you have this property, you're going to have to sell it, um, in order to pay C back, um, Whereas in bankruptcy law, there's a holistic consideration of what at like the government's assets. Um, and also it would consider like how much is each person owed so that it's not just like C is going to get their full five dollars. But it's like, OK, you owe a 80. You can't pay 80. Can you make it so that you pay a 60 over a longer period of time? You pay B 10 over a long period of time and you pay C like two or three um and so it's just like gives the city like the space to actually keep functioning um while also just like holistically seeing what can be done in a way that there's like a more equitable outcome for everyone um so that's bankruptcy law Yvette do you want to explain why I just gave that whole explanation in terms of what this case is about yeah so Um, like Cynthia was saying, Chapter 9 bankruptcy codes allow states to authorize their cities and counties and other branches of government to restructure their debt, um, except that Puerto Rico is not considered a state for Chapter 9 bankruptcy purposes. And so um, Puerto Rico has a massive amount of debt. And I guess before proceeding further, we should go into why that is. Um so the Puerto Rican economy is largely regulated by the U.S. Um, most of Puerto Rican goods are imported, uh, and their economy relies very heavily on tourism. 
and and also um, the the citizenry is there's forty percent unemployment. Um, there's lots of poverty on the island, and so um, there aren't as many opportunities for uh, revenue generation through taxation, especially because of the tax breaks that corporations, the very large tax breaks that corporations are given as incentives to make business on the island. And so, but still, like the people of the island need the basic infrastructure that we all need schools, hospitals electricity, water. Uh, and so in order to uh, maintain the, maintain that infrastructure, the Puerto Rican island um, took out borrowed money in bonds. And these bonds were made very attractive to hedge fund managers, basically, you know, in large part because government bonds are generally very attractive. Um, the government is basically like one of the, it's like the best guarantee for getting paid back, essentially. And so um, now Puerto Rico has just acquired this massive, massive debt. Um, and for, you know, for infrastructure purposes, we're talking basic infrastructure. Um, and because Puerto Rico really is caught between being an independent nation and a U.S. state, um, the th that is why this, this situation is what it is now. Um, and so Puerto Rico tried to pass a law to fix all of these problems, and they basically just tried to copy um, the Chapter 9 and Chapter 11 bankruptcy code and just tried to create a law that would allow for them to follow that same mechanism. Yeah, um, just, sorry, uh, just so that folks understand, like, Chapter 9, it's like Chapter 9 of this specific, like, um, body of law and this body of law is dealing specifically like who can file for bankruptcy and how they file for bankruptcy so it has different chapters for different um like bodies and chapter nine is specifically the like four cities four water districts four school boards that's like that's how they're cons that's where they would look for how they can file for bankruptcy yeah and so um the holding of the case was written by Justice Thomas, and uh, he held that even though Puerto Rico isn't a state for the purposes of um, the provision that would have allowed Puerto Rico to seek relief under Chapter 9, it actually is a state for other purposes, which means that Puerto Rico is not allowed to write its own, um, its own bankruptcy law. And so uh, Puerto Rico's law was invalidated. Cynthia, do you want to talk about what the practical significance of this case was or what it demonstrates about the hypocrisy of, of this logic? Yeah, so, I mean, the practical significance of this case is that it actually got Congress to do something, and we can talk more about, like, what's happened since this case came out. Um, but I just, you know, like, every time I see that it's Justice Thomas' opinion, I'm like, this is going to be great material for me to disagree with. Um, and... Sure enough, there was like this line in the <laughs> in the case that just really stood out to me. Um, and it's just that like the court found that it was like up to Congress, not Puerto Rico, to decide when the government owned companies could seek bankruptcy relief. And I just saw this. I was like, it's a, it's up to Congress, not not Puerto Rico, but like they can't vote anyone into Congress. I was like, 
like what like how how do, <laughs> how do they get something that's in their interest done by congress when they have no one in congress advocating for their interests i was just like well like court like what do you mean and then like i like i was reading articles about it like how people reacted when the case came out and there's i, f I found out about this person his name's pedro pierluisi and he's puerto rico's non-voting member of congress uh and he like had a quote on on what he thought happened but i was just like wait what like there's non-voting members of congress like do they get an office? Do they get a seat on the floor? Like, what does it mean to be a non-voting member of Congress? It's just like, it's just like, it's, they want to pretend like, oh yeah, like Puerto Rico's allowed to speak up, but it's like, but they're, but they're not. <laughs> I know. It's a facade of democracy, essentially. Yes. Um, and I actually like think, um, because I think Justice Thomas makes us, you mentioned before when we were talking about this, that Justice Thomas made a snarky remark about how um, Justice Sotomayor was trying to intervene in matters that are inappropriate for the judiciary <laughs> to intervene in, and that this was really a matter for Congress to decide. But I actually think that a situation like this is one in which the judiciary should be particularly apt to intervene they are particularly apt to intervene because um, it's very obvious that Congress has no incentive to care about Puerto Rico. And it's obvious that that's the case because of the legislation that they passed as a result of the decision in this case, which we're going to talk about in a bit. Um, you know, they, they don't care about the Puerto Rican people. And so if I think that the judiciary and the way that it's insulated from the political process really should be the mechanism through which, um, the rights of people who cannot participate in the political process should should um, pay attention to. Um. Yvette, could you talk more about um, what specifically like Sotomayor dissented um, and like what what was her approach to deciding this case? Yeah, so she criticized the majority's approach as being too mechanical, look, you know, looking too strictly at the plain language of the statute and not looking at the impact of the decision or what the purpose of the law is in the first place. And she, and, uh, you know, this is why I think we've talked about how this is why we like Sotomayor and how she differs from so many people in the legal academy and in the judiciary who love like making abstract, you know, hypotheticals in their head, but, you know, think that it's anti-intellectual to think about how a law is actually implemented or how it affects people's real lives um, and, you know, she's just like this chapter nine was intended to help cities, counties and other branches of government alleviate themselves when they've incurred massive debt. <laughs> Puerto Rico is a part, you know, it's a yeah. governmental entity of the U.S. So why would they not be allowed to partake in this? Yeah. Um, and it's just it's like uh, it's so, so frustrating because it's like nobody really knows why Congress did this. Like there is no record of them explaining or explaining like their thought process for why Puerto Rico was excluded. It like th I read some accounts where they're like, maybe it was an accident, like a mistake. And it's just like, it, of course, like they don't fucking care. They don't. There's no one in there with a stake on Puerto Rico like who like cares for, about them. Um, So it's just like. Sotomayor's approach just makes so much more sense because the law does not operate in a vacuum. Uh, also, like, I cannot imagine, like, like Sotomayor is a 
scholar on Puerto Rico law. Like she has been doing this research for a very long time. She is like a foremost expert. Like she like she's just been thinking about this, working on this, going visiting the island for such a long time. I cannot imagine like being a judge on the bench with her and going against what she says, being like, mm, I think you're wrong. Like what? Like how do you not just like defer to what Sotomayor is telling you like she's just so much more well researched and understands this issue so much better like how dare you sit at the table with her and tell her like no i think you're wrong i think your approach is wrong like oh god i like i cannot imagine it's super disrespectful but i think we should talk about now about the aftermath of the decision and the promesa board um yeah, please, Yvette, walk us through, like, the Promesa board and, like, oh, just, like, as a little bit of background. So once this case was decided, Congress uh, passed immediately, like, uh, within, like, 30 days immediately, um, a legislation so that Puerto Rico would not have to pay back its loans on the day that, like, its, its debt on the day it defaulted, that there wouldn't, like, it wouldn't be, like, a rush to the courthouse. Um, and then they also set up like this separate bankruptcy process for them. Yvette, do you want to talk about what was the bankruptcy process and who the Bromesa board is? Yeah. So uh, they created a financial control board um, and there's it's uh, comprised. So the members of the financial control control board are unelected and uh, Obama decided that um, or it was under the Obama administration that um, that Congress passed this law, um, and Obama appointed the members of the Financial Control Board, and the members include uh, a Puerto Rican banker with Santander, a huge Spanish bank, a Spanish bank. This is like <laughs> deep deep levels of colonialism here. Uh, a private equity manager, a former bank president, an insurance expert, and a corp- conservative corporate law professor were among the people who were named. Um, it, there's no no like Puerto Rican community member or a person who's coming from that perspective. It's all just people with uh, expertise in in uh, finance and bankruptcy. And by you know by expertise, I mean like people who uh, have the desire to have all of the bonds paid back in full because their interests are aligned with the hedge fund managers and bankers. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I, I just wanted to talk a little bit more. Yvette, you already mentioned this, but I just like really want to remind people like, it's like, okay, on one hand, it's these hedge fund managers and bondholders getting repaid and getting their money back. And on the other hand, it's like this government entity being able to provide um, water being able to provide electricity, uh, being able to provide education, right? So, like, I was reading that, like, the university's budget was, like, slashed by, I can't remember this exact number, but it was, like, 40% or something. Yeah. Um, and then they clo- they had to close, like, about a quarter of all their school districts. And this is just, like, oh, yeah, look at Puerto Rico being so good and, like, implementing austere uh, measures of expenditure. And it's just, like, what the fuck? Like, this isn't, this isn't optional, like... I don't know. And I also just see it as like how convenient for the U.S. government that because of its laws, Puerto Rico has not is not going to be able to provide like the level of education that it was providing. And so it's just like, I don't know. I just like think, oh, how convenient for the U.S. that like there's less access to education on the island. 
Yeah, I just it's just I find it deeply depressing that the US is so concerned with you know, like extracting every last penny from this island that people are living with hot, you know, around hospitals who that don't have electricity, schools are closing down, Pe- there's a 40% unemployment rate. Like and things will if the status quo remains, things will continue to get worse and Puerto Ricans will continue to suffer as long as these bankers get paid back because that's all that the U.S. really cares about is that these bankers get paid back. Yeah, and so just to wrap up the segment, we wanted to let folks know that there's an upcoming referendum on June 11th. So Puerto Ricans are going to be voting on um, whether they want statehood, so become like the 51st state of the United States, um, if they want independence, like complete independence. Um, and then recently, uh, because of a recommendation from the Trump administration, they've added a third option, which is to remain in the same position. And we'll, we'll update via like social media or something like what happens with this referendum. But I just like thought it was, again, hilarious that the Trump administration like suggested this third option, because even when they had two options, right, let's say one option got the majority vote, like so like 51 percent or higher of people like chose that option. That result did not mean that Congress had to do that. It didn't mean that Congress was going to act. It just meant that like Congress was like going to you know, be really pressured to do whatever this um, Puerto Ricans had said they want. And so now that there's like three options, like it's unlikely that any one option is going to get the majority. You know, you can imagine where it's like there's a 30, 30, like 35 or something like result. And that like Congress is going to have even more reason to be like, oh, well, there was really no result from this election. Like, I guess everything's fine Um, and just feel so much less inclined to act than they already would have felt. And it's just like, again, goes back to like the illusion of democracy that this country like always puts forth. Like it's it wants to make it seem like, oh, yeah, look, we're having elections. But really, like you're 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 not like that's not actually what's happening um Eva is there anything last you want to say on this before we wrap up the segment no I think that's a good thing to end on just it's very obvious that the Trump administration is in bed with corporations so not surprised by that addition on their part great here's a small song break we're gonna take um we're gonna listen to what's wrong with America the relatives just a small clip from it enjoy
Okay. So for our deep thought segment, we wanted to talk about mental health. We think it's it's really important and definitely not spoken about enough. Um, and maybe sometimes when it is spoken about, it can be really problematic. So Yvette, can you just tell us about why it's important to have this conversation, specifically in the legal profession? Yeah, so uh, there's actually rampant substance abuse within the legal profession. One in three lawyers are problem drinkers, you know, based on the volume and frequency of alcohol consumed. And I can definitely attest that I've witnessed that <laughs> just being in law school. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 28% of lawyers suffer from depression and 19% show symptoms of anxiety. Um, and what actually, are, what are the oh, like national rates? Like, what is that? So 19% show symptoms of anxiety and 28% suffer from depression. Like, what is the like the national average? Do you know? The national average for depression is five to nine percent of depression for depression. And I think it's important to highlight that because there have been studies that have shown that entering 1L, um, the class population will mirror that of the national population. So around five to nine percent of people will be depressed. And then at the end of 1L, 40 percent of law students are experiencing symptoms of depression. So. Uh, and I, I also I wanted to highlight that, too, because I definitely experienced depression in the fall, starting in the fall quarter of my 1L year. Um, and we're going to get into I'll, I'll like share a bit more about what that experience was like for me. But first, Cynthia, do you want to talk about why it's important to have this conversation also as Latinx people? Yeah, um, definitely. But before I do, I definitely wanted to preface my comments real quick. Um, I, you know, I'm always speaking from my own personal experience, but especially in this topic, I wanted to be clear that like in doing that, there's two things I am like not doing like very affirmatively. And like the first thing I, I don't want to do is like, uh, like co-opt the experience of depression because like the way I've heard others describe depression and the way it impacts their life um, and how they how they experience it, I've I don't feel like I've experienced depression, um, and I don't I don't yeah I don't think I've been depressed, um, so I don't want to like just adopt that as like a, a, my own personal experience. Um, like there's been times when I've definitely like have been really really rough in my life, but. I, I don't think I've been depressed. So I just, I don't want to like adopt that as my own because I don't think I can. Um, but on the other hand, like saying that, I also don't want to want to come off as saying like, oh, I don't get depressed because I think sometimes when we have this conversation in society, there's like two populations created where it's like those that like get depressed and those that just like don't. Um, and I don't think that's accurate representation of it. So I, I don't want to say like, I don't get depressed because like I could and I feel like I sometimes I have been close to it or or maybe for a short period of times I have been um and it's yeah so I just wanted to like stop before I said anything I wanted to make that very clear um awesome yeah okay so um just going to the Latinx community um I before like during high school and before I think like I didn't think about mental health at all, really. You know, I, the people around me in my community, we were, everybody was so focused on external problems, right? So like poverty and immigration, um, criminalization, joblessness, all, all of these external pro um, problems that there was just like really, I feel like no energy left over or time um, to deal with like the internal um, 
like issues that that came with. So when I went to college, I like reacted very negatively to mental health. I think because it was tied up to my reaction in general to like whiteness, um, where I saw like mental health, like almost like as a luxury, like I saw my community dealing with external problems. And here I saw like white people dealing with a lot of internal problems. Right. And so that like for a while there, I, I feel like I didn't, I wasn't that great about it, about like understanding it. And that's really just because like, and I've come to, I've moved away from that where I now see like mental health is important for everyone. And it's shitty that only um, part of our community, a part of our society has the luxury and the time to deal with, like address mental health. Um, and it's just, it's just not something that's been discussed in my family. It's, you know, I grew up with a lot of like toughen up and, and just deal with it as sort of like the attitudes in my family. Um, there was one point when like my family got really into like these mantras that I would like looking at back at them definitely feel like a mental health, um, like mantras. So like one of them, I remember like, like the, the mantra was like, no es mi pedo. And it was just like my, like people would just repeat it to themselves. Like no es mi pedo, no es mi pedo. And it was just like a way to like create separation from whatever you were worrying about, which I can see like as an important, um, thing for meditation. So, but yeah, other than that, like, it's just not something that's been addressed. Yeah, and I totally hear you about, you know, people associating therapy and taking care of your mental health as, like, something that privileged people do. Like, there's this idea that the only people who have time to ruminate on their lives are, uh, you know, the only people that, like, therapy is, like, a time to just, like, stare at your navel and <laughs> people that have time to do that are those with privilege but I just think it's it, I mean I think that yes only those who have access to therapy are able to do that and that is by and large people who are privileged but I actually think that the those who would benefit the most from it are not given access to it um, and like I I also totally hear that idea of focused on external problems or problems caused by forces outside of yourself, especially as a marginalized person. Um, but actually, I think that um, within the Latinx community, we need to get better about talking about how those external forces, immigration, poverty, are all interwoven with our mental health and can actually create intergenerational trauma which can make us more predisposed to depression so I learned recently that um, you don't just that um, you don't just pass down you know genetic material uh, you also pass down you can also pass down uh, trauma memories from trauma to future generations and so um, that's why people's responses to trauma can be informed by um, trauma that generations before them have experienced. And then on top of that, depression is an adaptive disease. So if you are currently in a bad job or a bad relationship, or just if, if things in your life are so bad that they you know, require you to expend a ton of emotional energy all the time, what your body does in, in really in an effort to try and preserve itself is that it shuts down, like it slows down 
all of its it slows down bodily functions, which is why you're very tired when you're depressed. Um, because it's just trying to save itself or preserve its energy, you know, kind of like crawling up into a shell or crawling up into a little ball until um, external forces around around you aren't attacking you anymore. Um, That's so interesting. I'm really glad you shared that. Like when I when you first told me about that, I was just that that just makes so much sense. Right. Like where a lot of communities like are in survival mode. And so it, it makes sense that, you know, the body's responding in this way like yeah I like I remember one time like I was really unhappy and really stressed because of my job um and my body like I was washing dishes and I literally just fainted like I just like blacked out like bam hit the floor and my parents to this day like they swear it's just because I wasn't taking care of myself because they don't see like how could I really be stressed um but it it just makes sense like that the body responds in this way like that you slow down I, I don't know just like it all clicked when you said that yeah I know and it acts in a weird way it makes me feel better because it's like it feels a little bit less like my body and mind are betraying me you know it feels it's like oh you know we're all well-intentioned here <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so Cynthia do you want to go into mental health tips that you've learned over the years yeah so um there's so th- I feel like uh, one is really silly. And so peop- like folks take this as you will. Um, but I recently, okay, so let me back up. So a couple weeks ago, I saw a friend of mine get into a car accident, as in like I was driving behind her and I saw another car hit her. Um, and she's okay. She's fine. She She's not a scratch. Um, but I was like freaking out <laughs> and like no one else really was. And so I tried not to. And but then I had to go to like social events and I was really not in a place to be social. So I just like drank and drank and drank. And I was really like the next day I was really upset with myself because knowing what I know about the legal profession, I do not want to ever rely on alcohol in that way. And so I was really disappointed in myself that I did for that event. Um, And so I went to a therapy session um, at Stanford just to like talk about this. And I was just really unhappy um, and upset with myself. And one of the things among the many things that the therapist recommended, she recommended like downloading an app that helped with like intentionality. And so I did. I downloaded this app called Headspace. And it's, you know, it's just like 10 minute um, like guided, I guess, meditation um, I really don't see it that way. I really see it as like an anxiety reducing slash like just relaxation activity. Um, it, there's, you're supposed to do it while sitting. I do it like right before I'm like, I go to sleep. So I'm like laying, laying down in my bed. Um, and it's really helped me just like stay calm, especially during finals. It's really helped me like, uh, clear up, I think like my mental space, like just, it, it's helping me get to where I feel like I want to be in terms of like my mental health where I want to be able to see like okay like I'm feeling guilty like okay hi guilt like I see you I see that you're I'm feeling it I see that you're here but you know what just like take a seat over here on the side of my mind like I'm not going to engage with you I see you I know that you're here but I'm not going to dive into you um and that that's where I want to be in terms of being able to like just compart- compartmentalize and like move forward throughout my life um so I think this this app will really help with that. Um, Yvette, what about you? What, do, what, have you, what are your skills and tips that you've learned? 
So I have also visited Stanford CAPS and as a result found a therapist that I see every week. And we do talk therapy. It's cognitive behavioral therapy. It's basically just where um, I go in a room and just talk about whatever, no guidance, whatever's on my mind. And my therapist will occasionally like ask prodding questions or will share a revelation that they have seen based on what I've been telling them. But actually, like the bulk of the work is done by you, um, which is what I like about it and what I think is important for me because... I truly believe that I have the skills to be able to understand what is occurring in my life in a way that's healthy and process it in a healthy way. But I live such a hectic life that I don't always make the space to actually sit down and reflect. So that's what weekly therapy is for me. Um, And then I'm also on an antidepressant, which I got on last year. And really being on an antidepressant has really changed my life. I I think that whether or not to go on medication is definitely a personal choice. And what kind of medication also is definitely a personal choice. But I'll just say that I think that the the stigma around it needs to be lessened. Like I had friends of mine, you know, say things like, oh, well, you know, you don't want to become dependent on it or uh, like... I I've seen other people get on antidepressants and they just numb it just numbs them they become a different person and really like first of all a lot of the things a lot of those comments are based on ignorance and also um or like some movies right like there's I feel like that <laughs> I can think of several <laughs> movies that put forward that argument honestly I bet you the I could totally see the person who said that to me like literally getting that from a fucking movie but thinking that the, like an intelligent thing to say um <laughs> no shade but yeah and like it's helped me it's actually had a very subtle effect on my life definitely hasn't altered who I am as a person uh it just gives me more energy throughout the day so that I can take care of all of the tasks that I need to do like the most important thing for me was having the energy to take care of my apartment um I'm I'm a high functioning depressive depressed person which means that which is actually like a kind of a bad place to be sometimes because um, you're really good at hiding the fact that you're depressed because you would just like present this like totally f- like functioning person to the world. But then like my apartment was a mess. It was just like really disgusting all the time. And it was it just made it hard to live there and be there. And now I have the energy to clean my apartment, do my laundry, cook for myself. And I, I feel like a much more holistic, well-rounded person. Um And then the last thing I'll just share is that I feel like we talk a lot about self-esteem in this society, like having a high esteem of yourself. But I think that it's more important to be self-compassionate. This is something my partner was talking to me about. So shout out to you, Joseph. But um, self-compassion is more important because I think self-esteem is tied to these is still tied to ideas of accomplishment and achievement and that we need to have hold ourselves in high esteem for the things that we've done. But self-compassion is just about loving yourself every day, regardless of how productive you were, what you did. And it's just about being nice to yourself. And it seems like really simple, but actually like we're socialized to be really, really hard on ourselves. So, um, encourage, you know, just like shifting your thinking to think about how you can have better self-compassion is what I would, is a tip that I would give. Um, before we wrap up the segment, Yvette, could you just like, we've been talking about the self a lot, which I think is like, is really important, but y- could you like set up the framework 
like two different frameworks, like one, like self-care versus community care and also like care versus coping. Yeah. So we'll start with care versus coping. Um, so caring for yourself is, uh, it's a productive activity. It's an activity that will rejuvenate you, um, that will heal you. And coping is just like survival mode, um, which we've been talking about a bit. It's just like the things that you do to, to get to get through the activity, right? Like, um, like you were mentioning that you drank because the social situation was really difficult, and so right, it's like the things yeah. that we do to just yeah. to just finish the event, to like finish the day, to like you know, um, and then uh, there's self care, which is how we understand taking care of ourselves but there have been critiques of that concept um, and people a lot of awesome thinkers like Harsha Walia have pushed us to think about community care instead which is just because of recognizing that we're all interdependent and that uh, this capitalist society encourages us to be individualist in a way that doesn't really make sense um, that community care just pushes us to think about how we can heal ourselves through our relationships with other people. Um, and Cynthia, you had a really awesome idea of what community care might look like because these things sound great in the abstract, but it's actually quite difficult to live them out. So do you want to share what your community care looks like? Yeah, um, I definitely like want to move away from like coping and consumption as like what I think about as care. So I and I also really want to be committed to like want to live out community care, especially like after <laughs> learning more about Oscar Rivera, I'm like, yes, community care. Um, but one of the things that I was thinking is just like cooking dinner for classmates um, where, you know, like, like if, a, if I know a classmate is like having a, a, like just really busy week. Right. And they just don't have time. I feel like just cooking a meal for them and like taking them that meal um, is just something that would be like, good for me and like good for them and like really um solidify like that we're in community together um and that we're there supporting each other and not make it like a one-off thing but like a regular thing like you know like I have time like I'm gonna cook myself a meal like I'm just gonna make this for two or for three or for four um and like you know have have that like be how we're caring for each other right now um and so yeah, I'm I'm doing this. I'm I'm trying this out. Like I, the first time I tried it out recently, I it was during finals week, and I just sent like a group of my um girlfriends like, hey, like, how are y'all doing? Like, do any of you need groceries? Like, do any of you need a meal? Do any of you need to, like go on a walk? I don't remember like the options I gave, but um, it was just like I just wanted to check in, and I think folks took it as like, oh, you're like being really nice. Like this is a really nice thing to do during finals. But I'm like, no, I want this to be a regular thing. You know, like when I have time, when I like I'm free, I want to show up um, and be there for others. So yeah, dope. Should we move into the recommendations? Yeah, let's do it. So my recommendation for this week um, is another podcast. It's called Snap Judgment. Uh, it's a really it's just like an incredible podcast and it's um, they just featured like different stories um, and it's really well produced. Like the music is amazing. Um, the host of it is awesome. He always has like great stories and his voice is incredible. Um, but it's just like, I, I think it's important to stay connected to other people who you like will never meet um, just be, as a, as a way to step back from your life and understand like what other folks are experiencing and, and how like, 
that those experiences are shaping them. And so, you know, through this podcast, I've heard a story, you know, like I've heard a guy talking about his trans sister and that was a really great um, episode. There's also been an episode on like this, uh, a black man who became a really good friend of like a top clans member. And if you're getting like ideas of what, what that episode would sound like just from the title, like don't go listen to it. It's really good. Um, And there was also another one about like a radio station in Iraq challenging ISIL. So I just like chose those three examples because they're really good. But I also want to just show the variety of stories that they capture and present. And so I really recommend um, a listen. Yeah, I, I listened to the episode that Cynthia Cynthia sent me, the episode about the man talking about his trans sister. And it was really moving. So I second these recommendations. Um, and my recommendation is a barrier specific one. Uh Sorry for anyone who can't access it, but uh, <laughs> for those who are in the Bay Area, um, I recommend hiking at Tilden Regional Park. Uh, it's pretty wild. I've lived in the Bay Area my whole life and really had no idea this existed until pretty recently. It's a huge park in the East Bay, um, and I hiked a really pretty trail to Lake Anza, the lake that's in the middle of the park. So I recommend hiking and ending with a picnic at Lake Anza. Dope. Um, before we end, I personally just wanted to add something. I was listening back to the our first episode and something that really stuck out to me is that I use the word crazy um, and I was just really disappointed in myself. That's a word that I've tried to eradicate from my vocabulary because of it's just like not um, not the right way to describe anything. Um, and so I just wanted to apologize whether I offended anyone or not. I just wanted to apologize because that's not something I want in my language. So, yeah. Um, Yvette, where can people follow us or listen to us? Uh, so you can follow us on Instagram at Cerebronas, on Twitter at Cerebronas, um, and our WordPress, which is cerebronas.pod, right? Uh, we'll link to it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay. it, we're on iTunes, we're on like Google Play, Stitcher, like all the main sites. If you listen to us on iTunes... Uh, feel free to leave a rating <laughs> yes five star rating please <laughs> um Yvette it was wonderful to be in dialogue and in community with you once again yes it was bye everyone bye. <laughs>